The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by an American original. Resonator and lap steel guitar master Jerry Douglas has made an immeasurable influence on country, bluegrass, Americana, and traditional music. As a leader, accompanist, or solo, Jerry Douglas has created some truly remarkable recordings and performances. A 14-time Grammy Award winner, respected musician, record producer, composer, and recording artist, Americana legend Willis Allen Ramsey said this of him, Jerry Douglas, for decades now, has taken the dobro into whole new areas of discovery. Jerry has also recorded with a variety of artists, Paul Simon, Lyle Lovett, Garth Brooks, George Jones, Allison Krauss, James Ray Charles, Tommy Emanuel. In fact, you can hear Jerry Douglas's playing on more than 1,500 albums. Our topic of discussion on this episode includes the new record, Leftover Feelings from John Hyatt with the Jerry Douglas Band. It's out May 21st, 2021 on New West Records. So, Jerry Douglas, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us here. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I've been watching your show and I enjoy it immensely. Yeah, it's been great. It's been, I, I did a little homework and uh, did a little viewing and, and, uh, it's a great show, man. Tons of people, great people that I would like to interview. Sounds like a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun and a lot of work. Sounds like you did have a good time. <laughs> sounds like me. <laughs> so, Leftover Feelings. Tell us, what do you think of this record? I really like the record, and I didn't know what to expect going into this record with, with Mr. Hyatt. He's just one of the greatest songwriters in the whole American song bag, wouldn't you say? I mean, he's, I kept looking at this list of songs that he'd written and I went, he wrote that? Yeah. He wrote that. He wrote that. And, and it was, yeah, he wrote them. And we've known each other for quite a few years and recorded together the first time on, uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, Volume 2. Uh, with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, you know, it was the second big record. I wasn't around for the first one, but John Hyatt came in and sang a song with uh, Roseanne Cash that he had written for the record. And they were coming through so fast. It was like a turnstile. You know, we were sitting, I think it was the, the longest running gig I've ever had you know, in the studio, sitting in one chair for two weeks watching these stars after stars go by, you know, Johnny Cash. I didn't know I'd recorded with, with uh, John 
Oh, <laughs> who who is it? Uh, never mind. <laughs> I did. There were a lot of people that came through on that record. I didn't know I'd recorded with until after the record was over, and somebody said, "Hey, you recorded with so and so," and I went, "I did." Yeah, yeah, yesterday. Yeah, it was pretty quick, but that was the first time I met John, and we got on and have remained friends through the years, but we'd never collaborated on anything. What was your first impression when you met John Hyatt? I thought he has a very rough exterior. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I, I don't know how, I mean, it, it took me a, a few minutes to converse with him to, to know where we were going to go with the conversation. If he had the time, you know, all, all these kind of things. And, but, then it, it just kind of clicked and and we went right into some deep discussion, went down a rabbit hole of some kind. We were talking about Rye Cooter is, <laughs> is the, I remember we were sitting backstage at Newport at the folk festival at Newport, sitting on a picnic table backstage, just talking, you know, as that's the only place that, that the people that are playing on stage can actually go and have any kind of conversation. There are just a ring of trailers back there dressing rooms and then the stage so there's not a lot of not a lot of con conversation going on but we found a place to do it a very pleasant guy very pleasant pleasant very pleasant and we've seen each other around town because we both live here in nashville and now he lives about a mile from me in my in my neighborhood so uh, i was just over there earlier today to do an interview with him it was one that we started yesterday and then ran into some digital glitches and had to end up finishing it to today. Yeah. He's, he's a great guy. He's a great guy and, and has so much history inside him, you know, and he carries it around and, and once in a while he'll write a song about something that happened that, you know, you didn't, you, you would never have known about. And, uh, and it has a huge impact on you. He's just that kind of guy. He's he's quite an encyclopedia. As I was mentioning at the top, there's there's so many things that you have done from recording to performing, producing records. I mean, you can just go right down the line. Is there a part of creation of music that excites you the most? Yes, and you would. It's not what you think it would be. It's the part that makes me the most excited is mastering a record. And I'll tell you why. You can produce a record, and you know, a record producer is the equivalent of a film director. So you're you're kind of casting characters. You're listening. I mean, he John get like John gives me a song, and I and we're using my band. So I know kind of how to cast it for who to play the solo in the song, who to play where, you know, and what, what do you do with this lyric that he's just, that he's just read. And what do you do with that? How do you, how do you paint that? Because essentially what we're doing is, is painting, framing him in all the time, but keeping, keeping his substance, on the up on the stage you know and then f painting in all around that and helping the listener 
really, really absorb what he's just said and not not to interrupt his vocal ever up to interrupt what he's saying, but just sort of accent what he's saying sometimes. And there are musical ways to do that. And the guys that are in my band that I play with all the time, they're they're so good at that. And that's that's why I knew the band would work on this record. Yeah. My favorite part is you record the record, you mix the record, so you've got everything. It's sort of like a child, you know, it's it's like it's nothing. It's this this blob of notes. Hmm. And then as you mix it, it starts to come alive and starts to, you know, have dynamics, you know, and things start to move. And then you mix it and it's all in one place. And then you take it to mastering. And it, and this is a step in, in record making that a lot of people skip nowadays. And I, I can't understand for uh, the life of me why they would do that. But it sonically enhances the record. You can find things in mastering that you didn't hear when you were mixing the record. But somebody's going to hear it later because you hear it so much while you're making the record. You can kind of become numb to some of these things. And you get to mastering and you've got the full picture in front of you. And when you leave mastering, it's finished. It's up. It's walking. It's a, it's a, it's a live human being at that point. And to me, that's, that's it. You know, then that's it. That's your snapshot of hundreds of hours of work. And at that point, you better be pleased by it or start over. <laughs> but that's my favorite part about making records. And and just the collaboration, just the idea of collaborating, taking another person's words or another person's thoughts and trying to, to you know, that comes goes through you, through your conduit into your instrument, which is actually the conduit of your mind, you know, of, of what you your thoughts and everything are then put into the instrument and then out into the into the ether. It's a very interesting experiment. Every record is an experiment. Mm. Well, this is just coming from my perspective as a listener, and I haven't heard. I've, I've only heard the tracks that are are currently commercially available. There are a lot of times when I've been listening to these songs that it does feel like a duet to me of his vocal and your instrumentation. You said that you you always wanted to put John's vocals on the stage, but it seems like more of a duet than most records that I've heard. Well, yeah. <laughs> when I first heard the record back after we finished it, I said, too much Dobro on this record. Huh. You know? But it is kind of a conversation between John and I. Mm-hmm. and. So, yeah, it, it doesn't help help my case much that Dobro is actually the first thing you hear on the record, <laughs> you know. It and uh, and there's a lot of Dobro on the record, and and he wanted it that way, and that's what I play, and that's how I that's how I speak, you know. A- after I've kind of like talked to everybody else, and we've talked through a talked through a, a an arrangement. Of, and that's always just a loose arrangement. There's never any verbatim, you, well, you have to play it this way. I really 
support anything that these other guys, you know, that are in the band, what they play. I'm, I'm on the team and uh, they do a wonderful job. And I guess it is kind of a conversation. It's a collaboration. It was a, it was meant to be a collaboration between he and I, and I brought my band in as uh, support for both of us. I suppose it's been serendipitous in a lot of ways that we both ended up in the same under the same umbrella of management and our managers are actually the guys that got this idea together for us to do the record. And I'm, I'm thankful to them for doing it. You know, I've, I've known John for a long time and we've been friends, but neither of us ever thought we would be making a record together. We just, we, we float in different orbits, you know, uh, but once in a while, it'll come back to something like, you know, I'm a huge fan of Sonny Landreth. I'm a huge fan of Ry Cooter. And somehow John's musical life and his songs and the things he's recorded have always been kind of driven by some kind of slide guitar. And I don't think it's an accident that I was the next in line. It's just sort of part of his part of his the way he thinks the way he writes just it's just perfect for swampiness you know so i think that's that was one of the things that that uh the manager saw that and you know and talked to us about it talked to they asked john about it and john said i never thought about it but yeah you know and i just instantly said yes you know i'd love to do this and I, f- I feel like I'm ready to to produce a record like this. So that was the, then we stepped in and started throwing songs back and forth. And he sent me a whole lot of songs and we just sort of tried to pick the right songs that would, you know, one could come after the other one or, or, or could be complete juxtaposition, you know, and just a shocker or a palate cleanser, or, you know, that's how you think of these songs in in an order is to is to tell a story you know these days when people are streaming so much Mm. you know live uh, and down downloading it's sort of takes takes it out of context Uh, they'll like one song more than the rest and they'll grab that song and uh maybe come back and grab another song later so so for us to for us to build this steady narrative of a record, you know, it almost doesn't matter anymore unless it's people who just put on a record, sit down and listen to the whole thing. And that's, that's what we made the record for. That's how we made the record. Well, from what I've heard, it's superb, sir. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I'm glad you like it. I hope a lot of other people do. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think of John Hyatt, the singer? What do you think of him as a vocalist? John John has has gone through periods in his career when he was just like the singer, you know, spot on, and then his care his voice his voice changed throughout his career, became a little more gruff, and it's sort of like if you were to if you were to take Tom Waits and say you can't 
have that rasp anymore. You have to sing exactly in tune every note, or we're going to tune you to make you in tune. It wouldn't sound like Tom Waits. And, and, uh, it's, it's the same with, it's the same with Willie Nelson or, and John. John is, John is a character. His voice has so much character in it. It's not, it's not one of these voices like, like I've worked with Alison Krauss for so long. It's so perfectly on, you know, and laser pitch and sharp, you know, and focused. His voice is like, it's like there's this tornado going on. And right inside it is this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful voice. And you, you have to, you have to get through the tornado to hear, to hear that. But it, it's, it's there all the time. And then you, you, you sharpen your focus and you hear it. And it's just, you know, uh, I think, I think without the gruffness and without the imperfectness of it, it wouldn't have nearly the effect, you know, hmm. other people have had good luck singing his songs too, but he's had the best luck right. singing. And that, that just goes to prove that his voice is, is a commodity. You know, hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. It's a very salable thing. And, and that's because people feel an honesty coming from it. Well, speaking of the honesty, at least from, from my ears, there's a kind of tenderness, and I don't know if that's your instrumentation or what, but it's definitely John Hyatt singing. But this seems like a very different John Hyatt record to me. It's different in that he's playing with a a practiced band. These guys play have played with me for five or six years now and are so intuitive. They know what I'm going to do. I know what they're going to do. And uh, John throwing John into the middle of that. It's like, you know, it's like he's not playing with the goners. He's playing with us. So we're hmm. we're sort of setting up the we're building the scenery behind behind the the words. So it's it's uh, it may it may seem. I think there are songs on this record that we that we did that we pulled off that maybe the other bands couldn't have, you know, there, there's some, some really, there's some deep soul searching on this record. I mean, he's always done that. He's always written his life, you know, sung his on this record that are totally personal. And, uh, we treated him that way. We treated him with the utmost respect and, and then, you know, then there'd come up a song, like there's this little song, song called Little Good Night, Little Good Night on there. And it's about his wife and him thinking that, you know, parenthood was going to be a breeze. And then they have this baby who won't go to sleep, <laughs> you know, a colicky baby. If anybody's had a colicky baby, this song is about that. You know, if you don't get some sleep, we're not going to be able to take it. You know, and it just goes, it just goes all over the place. And we do too. We just, we go ballistic too. It, it's, uh, it explodes and it comes back together, you know, at the right times. But it's, <laughs> it's, the record has a, goes to a few different places, but I feel pretty good about what we, how we, how we, uh, 
prepared each of the songs for him to sing to. Is it possible to pick the real highlight in terms of the tracks? Well, well, I'll have about four of them that I just like can't get out of my head. But there's one called, uh, there's one song called I'm in, I'm in Asheville, like as in North Carolina. But uh, I asked him to send me the lyrics for, for the songs. And he sent me these lyrics and then I got, and I, and I got to this song called leftover feelings. And I said, well, what's, where'd this come from? I don't know. I don't recognize this title. And as I read down through the lyrics, the lyrics, the the song was, we had been calling it, I'm in Asheville. And he didn't, he didn't tell us any different. And then there's the line of uh, leftover feelings is mentioned is one of the, one of the lines in the in the lyrics is just mentioned in the lyrics and we i said this this song should be called i'm in asheville and we should title the record leftover feelings and he went great idea (laughs) (laughs) done he he doesn't take him long well once john gets gets an idea or somebody makes a suggestion that he likes he locks onto it really fast. He doesn't go away to think about it for any length of time. If he likes it, that's it. That's huh. it. It's in stone. Well, Jerry, who would you say has taught you the most about record producing? Oh, wow. There are about four guys. Number one on that list would be Brian Ahern. Brian Ahern was was married to Amy Lou Harris when they made luxury liner and some of the earlier Emmylou Harris records and was the first, I went in to do an overdub, just a simple overdub for Emmy. And I was pretty young. We did a take, we did a run through and, and Brian said, you know, most of that was good. Most of that's it. That's, that's kind of it. The only thing I would tell you is when she goes, when she's singing, don't play in her register because it has a, sort of has a canceling effect. It's distracting. And I took those words to the bank. And that's been part of my recording Bible from then on. And he had so many great ideas and he trained so many people to make records. Ricky Skaggs, Rodney Crowell, Emery Gordy, you know, just tons and tons of people who went through Emmy's camp or through Brian's, you know, who who were on Brian's at the edge of his world at any time. And he's, he's very, you don't, you don't hear about him that much anymore. I mean, he came to Nashville and uh, he didn't really do, he didn't do a lot of records. We did it. We did one George Jones record out at uh, Bradley's barn outside of town. And uh, there, it was one of these records. It was just like Owen Bradley would have done it. Everybody was there at the same same time all the parts happened it was all synchronicity the only thing is they were recording with these in this format adat adat format and at that point they didn't have a way to lock up the machines of eight tracks each so they had 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 to have like four guys standing there and the main engineer would would count down but he hit record at the same time and you just had to hope that that was going to play back you're going to be able to lock them up to play back but that, that was Chuck Ainley, good man, great engineer. But Chuck is a great engineer. 
Tony Brown, who did tons and tons of country records here in town, taught me a lot. Garth Fundus, who produced Don Williams and Keith Whitley and Trish Yearwood and a lot of people like that. Alan Reynolds, who produced Garth Brooks and and tons and tons of other country artists. You know, when I for about 15 years I did just one session after another until it was until I was kind of at burnout stage and then started working with Alison Krauss. Pretty much saved my musical life from wondering if I had just played the same solo two days ago, you know, things like that. But Kyle Lenning is one of the guys I've learned the most from just watching him work with people in the studio. And and what I've learned from all of these guys is there is quite a bit of psychology that goes along with knowing how these machines work. But just getting a great performance from someone is all in the direction that you give them mm-hmm. and how you give them that direction. You know, and and uh all of those guys that I've named have been, you know, PhDs in that. They could they could get something out of you you didn't know was there just by giving you an idea or a mental picture or or really honing in to, on onto things. You know, um, it is a you should have to have a psychology degree to be a music producer, mm-hmm. a, a rapper because it, it does have a lot in and t-bone burnett's the same way t-bone burnett knows who to hire he knows the musicians to hire and he gets them in the room gives them some direction and then lets them go and because he's hired these people for us this specific record and he knows what they're going to he knows kind of what they're going to bring to the table and his what his wife Sam Phillips a long time ago said that T Bone was a a great producer. He was like Hugh Hefner. She said he he, he throws a good party and keeps keeps all the drinks full. <laughs> <laughs> but and I thought that's that's perfect. He does that. He 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 points you in the right direction. If you start to veer, he'll bring you back in. But you know he's not a hands-on like no play this play this series of notes or anything like that. None of these great producers do that. They know what when they hire you, they know what they're going to get, and it it's seldom ever goes wrong that that kind of production. Well, I feel like I can go into this topic because there is a John Hyatt connection here. Good, I think. Well, and I should I should add for anybody who's checking this out, Bob Dylan recorded one of John Hyatt's songs. And uh, the reason I mentioned Bob Dylan, my absolute favorite interpretation of a Bob Dylan song, period, is Tim O'Brien, Farewell Angelina. Ah. And you played on that track. I did. And it's just, it's... Golly, I can never get tired of hearing that. And again, it, the first thing you hear is the instrument. Can you recall making that particular record? Yeah, he made it. He made a record called "Red on Blonde." Yeah, <laughs> because uh, Tim O'Brien has red hair, and he didn't. He couldn't call it "Blonde on Blonde," so he, he or 
so he called it red on blonde and he did all bob dylan songs we played we also did everything is broken on there and, and just a, tombstone blues a whole bunch of really great songs but that that one farewell angelina was one of the softer songs on the record one of the more plaintive songs and the more more like uh Stephen, oh, hard times come no more. Stephen you know? Foster. Stephen Foster kind of a reading that he gave it. And Tim's just one of these natural singers. It just falls out of him and it's perfect and it's beautiful. And, and his phrasing is, he's, he's different than anyone else. You know that it's Tim O'Brien when you hear it. And he's, he's like that. He's like Johnny Cash or, you know, one of these people where, the sound of his voice, I mean, it's so smooth and it's, it sounds so easy for him yeah. to do. And I, and I think it is, he's just a songbird and he started to sing the song and I, and I put the dobro down and I think I played a Weisenborn guitar on that, which it was an originally a, a Hawaiian instrument made out of koa wood from the Hawaii but was hollow all the way the neck was was still a chamber all the way to the headstock where the nut is up there at the headstock where the tuners are the guitar is hollow all that way and it's like an eggshell it's very light and it's very delicate but it it produces the most beautiful tone as long as you don't play it hard if you start to play it hard then you're defeating the guitar and the purpose you know and everything so usually I would play it without picks, and and I think I played uh, Angelina on that because just because it was it was hitting me, you know, in the heart. Everything he was singing, and the idea that Bob Dylan wrote this song, boy, was he hurting. It just was so so transparent. It's a it's a great song, and and I think Tim did a wonderful job. That that whole album, if you if you want to hear somebody do Dylan songs. A different way but you still get the essence of dylan red on blonde by tim o'brien is your that's your that's your ticket oh yeah hats off <laughs> yeah totally totally well going back to leftover feelings for anybody who listens to that album is there something in particular you want the listener to get from that experience hmm. well we try, we try as musicians in the studio because we have no audience, right? So we're playing to a future audience. We're trying to create one piece of work. And that one piece of work can be like one song, but it can be heard so many different ways by so many different people because people are all different. But I want, I would like all of them to, to walk away with after hearing this record or any of these, these songs that we did connect the lyrics and the music and that they're all one piece. They're, they're like inseparable. And it's like, it was like, it's like casting a movie, you know, it's like, okay, what instruments do we use on this song to give this song the best treatment? Oh, Maybe we won't have electric guitar on this. Maybe we'll have two acoustic guitars because John's going to play an acoustic. So Mike Seal, the electric guitar player, he would go to an acoustic guitar player as well. So it brings down, softens softens things and 
you know, you, you build a nice bed for things to happen on, things to jump in, jump in and out of, jump up and down, only at the proper times. I would want people to think that we took the utmost care with some uh, some very valuable material that we were given to to work with, and that would be John Hyatt songs because I think they're just amazing. Each one of them, I, I still learn something every time I listen to listen to those songs, and I've heard them more than anybody at this point because going through the recording and mixing process and everything. You hear it thousands of times. I try to turn over every rock and find every everything that's that that could possibly go wrong, and and anything that sounds like it's a leading to a leading to some kind of collision. We'll try to we'll try to either either make the collision happen or go around it. You know, I mean, I talk in I talk in really broad terms about these kind of things. Because that's the way I visualize them. Music, it's not just words. It's sometimes a song can be known for its, its what we call a hook line, which is a recurring instrumental, you know, musical line that will line the song, bring the song back, back into view, back, back into focus. And a lot of times people will know as soon as you kick off a song, as soon as you play the intro, they know what song it is and they start to go nuts. If they don't do that, you haven't done your job. <laughs> hmm. You know, you should set it, you should set it up. That's that's what we try to do is set it up and make it all memorable, not just the lyrics, not just the story, but the whole piece, the whole hmm. piece. Well, on that note, a track like The Lilacs of Ohio, which the first time that appeared was on the very underrated album, I think, an excellent John Hyatt record, The Tiki Bar is Open. Did did you go back and listen to that and try to maybe either take the good parts from that, or did you try to go drastically away from that to be different? How would you do that? You know what? I heard the song once or twice. I listened to it once or twice, and I knew about it coming out on the the previous record. And I thought, well, we this is going to be different anyway, just because of what we have here. Who's in this room? It's going to be different. And I didn't try to make it drastically different. I just didn't take a lot of information from the other cut. I tried to make it our own. I tried to make it fresh, and I think we did. I, it, it's. You hear the two side by side. One is a four piece rock band. The other one is a, is a really strong string band. So it, it takes it to a different place. The two, the song is so great anyway. The, the, the line, all the lilacs in Ohio. So I'm from Ohio and I went, John, I don't, I don't know where you're getting the, all these lilacs from Ohio. I don't remember a lot of lilacs in Ohio, but I guess there were, but. It came from a movie called Lost Weekend with Ray Milland. And he's talking to the, the bartender who he spends most of his time with at this hotel while he's waiting for his, his girlfriend to come down, his love to come down. And she can't come down to meet him in this one time. So, but she sends an envelope down with a little note inside. And he, and Ray Milland says he opened the, uh, 
the envelope and he said in it and it smelled like all the lilacs from ohio <laughs> he just loved her so much you know he just he, everything about her even her writing hmm. so check it out <laughs> absolutely absolutely well my last question what is the best thing about being jerry douglas oh my uh, well i play an instrument a dobro guitar that isn't a household name. So for years and years, I had to explain it, what it was. And I explained, yeah, it's a guitar, but it's a, it's a slide guitar, but it's not a slide guitar that you play like a regular guitar. You put it on your lap, you play it, you know, and it was a long explanation. And, and then somebody would say, well, who invented it? And I, well, these Czechoslovakian brothers, you know, came to California and, and, liked Hawaiian music, but it wasn't loud enough because they came from an umpa world. You know, it's all that. So I was among the first ones, I guess, to uh, players of a dobro after basketball brother Oswald with Roy Acuff on the Opry, on the Grand Ole Opry, and then Josh Graves, who was my main source of information and inspiration, who played with Flat and Scruggs. And he had to, Josh Graves had to play, be able to play fiddle tunes. He had to be able to play fast to keep up with Earl Scruggs, who was just flying. And so he incorporated a three-fingered roll that enabled him to, uh, with the use of open strings and, and the slide that we play with, to be able to play fiddle tunes and instrumentals and things like that. Well, that was totally brand new in the dobro world when he started doing that and i've tried to i've tried to further that the jerry douglas part of it is is uh i'm sort of the the guinea pig of all of these new things that you can try on dobros you know but i i my style of playing i tried i tried to to take what josh graves gave me and and at an early age, I had a cousin move into the house looking for work uh, because we lived up north and he came from the south, just like my family did, looking for work. He came in and it was just when the Beatles broke and the first time I heard the birds or the Rolling Stones or anything like this. My, my family music was bluegrass music or country music. And I didn't hear all these other things that were on FM radio or AM radio, or whatever he was listening to, or anybody would listen to. There were so many things I heard, Don't Walk Away, Renee, all Left Bank, all of these things. And, and I grew up close to Cleveland, so there were great rock stations out of Cleveland. So I took all these rock influences, a lot of Clapton, and merged them with my bluegrass heroes, you know, what I'd learned from Josh Graves playing the dobro and tried to create some kind of synergy out of that. If there's such a thing as a Jerry Douglas, that's what I am. It, it, it's a, I'm a very musical being. And uh, I've spent my whole life playing on the road, playing for people and or recording. You know, music has been it. Music is, I, I, I fly fish and, I, and I'm a terrible golfer. And I've also been surrounded by some amazing, amazing musicians like Tony Rice and Sam Bush and Bela Fleck and Mark O'Connor and 
you know, Brian, you know, all their, and they're, and they keep coming. The newer guys keep coming and playing with us. It was, and I kind of fell into this Renaissance period where there were those guys that I just mentioned. We all kind of happened on the scene at the same time and brought up all of our outside influences to bluegrass music and to acoustic music and made a name for ourselves that way because we were doing something no one had ever heard. And it wasn't betray it wasn't because we were trying to keep it to ourselves. It was just not a, a popular music. It wasn't listened to like it is now. I mean, there are so many people out there that, that have gone from bluegrass music to, you know, the Foo Fighters or to, you know, I've met all kind every band that I, every great band I know, there's somebody in there were going, man, I bluegrass music was where I cut my teeth. Hmm. And it's how that's how I got here because it's such a it's such a physical music and and there and it's it's a band music, you know, it's a it's a all for one kind of the situation. It's not like I'm out here on stage, you gotta play with me. It's the other way around. You listen to what's going on around you and play to that with bluegrass music and whatever this is you call what we play nowadays. It's uh, it's it's just some uh, off uh, a branch off of bluegrass. But all of us that I've named also can we can all play those bluegrass uh, solos that we love so much. We can play those verbatim with we, we, those never leave you. You're constantly recalling parts of that in any kind of situation you're in, whether it's classical or rock and roll or whatever. I've got, I'm bluegrass at heart, but I love every kind of music and have been uh, so inspired by so many of my friends and people that I've met uh, through the years who've uh, introduced me to just different sounds. Like the first time I heard Weather Report or Chick Corea, you know, I just soaked that up and that became part of my phrasing you know or it crept into me somehow that way but being jerry douglas i don't know i don't know what to do with that it's just uh i just am who i am and happened when i did <laughs> well anybody out there you can go to jerrydouglas.com you can also go to johnhyatt.com and Leftover Feelings, it's out May 21st. That's tomorrow. We're recording this on the 20th. You can get it on download. If you really want to be kind to yourself, get a CD or a vinyl record and enjoy. And Jerry <laughs> Douglas, I hope that we have a chance to speak again someday. This has been a I'd real love honor. to. I would love to. I'm honored. Thank you for having me on. It's real nice to see you, Paul. Hey, good to see you. Until next time. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. <laughs> 